today on Against the Grain, climate change seems so overwhelming. Cataclysmic disruption seems so inevitable. Cynthia Kaufman says that it's not too late, that the climate justice movement has a place for each of us. I'm CS, the educator, veteran, activist, and author of The Sea is Rising and So Are We, joins us coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. News you already know. The climate crisis is upon us. Rising seas, extreme weather, severe drought. It's not in the future. It's now. And all indications are it'll get worse before it gets better. If, if it ever gets better. But how could it get better? As you and I and Cynthia Kaufman know well, It won't get better if we do nothing, if we sit on the sidelines, if we fret and fidget without fighting, without joining the all-important climate fight. So what do we do? How do we add our voices? What contributions can we make? What action can we take, not next year or five years from now, but right now, when time is of the essence? Cynthia Kaufman has packed a lot of analysis and advice into a new book about climate change, its causes and challenges, and the opportunities it presents for the left, including the anti-capitalist left. The book's title is The Sea is Rising and So Are We, a Climate Justice Handbook. Cynthia teaches at De Anza College in Cupertino, California, where she directs the Vasconcelos Institute for Democracy in Action. She's been active in climate change, Central American solidarity, police accountability, tenants' rights, and other movements. Her other books include Getting Past Capitalism, Challenging Power, and Ideas for Action. The bulk of today's program has the following format. First, Cynthia Kaufman prepared at our request a talk about some of the key issues and concerns raised in her new book. Then I engage her in some Q&A. Here is Cynthia talking about her book. Anybody who has an analysis of how capitalism works has a pretty clear understanding of why we're not moving quickly enough to deal with the climate crisis. We know that for the past 500 years, a system of social organization has been growing that puts the needs of those seeking private profit over all other human needs. And we also know that that led to slavery and colonialism and the idea that human beings could be reduced to inputs of production and that people's humanity doesn't matter, that what matters is profit. Capitalism has always been racial capitalism from the start. In other words, from the very beginning, capitalism relied on the destruction of other people's forms of life and on uh, the free labor that comes from enslaved labor. Capitalism rips social systems away from attention to the social and natural matrices that support human well-being. Capitalism also develops forms of government whose main purpose is to facilitate the process of wealth accumulation. We know that it's led to a society where those who profit from burning fossil fuels and from industrial agriculture have tremendous power to shape government policy where companies can actually make it illegal for consumers to repair products that they buy so that they need to keep buying new ones. Where people are pushed into forms of life where pleasure comes from buying more and bigger things and last shorter and shorter lengths of time. Where an empty hedonic treadmill leads people to using up more and more of the Earth's resources while leading people to have increasing levels of anxiety and depression and unhappiness. I learned recently that 7 million people a year die globally from air pollution. And we all know that that there's plenty to be done to stop air pollution, but that governments are slow to enact those regulations because of the power of corporations. The fight over the Line 3 pipeline in northern Minnesota shows how deeply entrenched the systems are that allow private capital to pursue its interests at the expense of the rest of us. This year, there was a a report that got a lot of attention from the International Energy Association. They're a very conservative energy industry organization that has basically said that we need to completely stop building new fossil fuel capacity as of right now. And yet the Biden administration has not revoked the permits for the Line 3 pipeline in northern Minnesota. 
That pipeline is being fought by local indigenous people and their allies. They're fighting against it because it goes through sensitive and culturally important areas. And also because it adds fossil fuel capacity, which we know that the world does not need. It's needed for profits, but it's not needed for human society. And the protests against the pipeline are being brutally repressed by local police. And those police are being paid for by Enbridge, the company that owns the project. The local governments in Minnesota, as well as the Biden administration, are all doing the work of creating profit for Enbridge while not acting to protect the livelihoods of the indigenous people who live on and steward that land. And to bring the Enbridge uh, Line 3 pipeline uh, story closer to home, um, as a teacher in California, I have a pension coming to me eventually that's paid for by taxpayers. But because it's underfunded, our pension funds have to play the stock market in order to secure our pensions. CalSTRS, the, the uh, state teacher's pension retirement system, is invested in Enbridge. And so it's a part, and my pension is a part, of the system of relations that's destroying the atmosphere while also destroying people's livelihoods in indigenous lands in northern Minnesota. An anti-capitalist analysis has helped us to understand that governments can be bought and often do the bidding of powerful companies pursuing profits. Anti-capitalism helps us to see those forces will not give up with an argument that it's better to do things in sustainable ways. Our anti-capitalist analysis allows us to see through the rhetoric that says that business can be expected to work for the environment because they can save money by being green. We all know that the climate crisis will not be solved by capitalism rolling along in the ways that it is programmed to roll along. And there are people like Bill Gates and Michael Bloomberg who've both written books saying that, you know, uh, there's a lot of profit to be made in the transition to a green economy that um, and both of their books kind of encourage the rest of us to sit back and wait for the technological change that are in the interests of business. Um, and it is true that we're in the middle of a major global social transformation in how we use energy and grow food. And it is true that new technologies such as solar power, microgrids, better ways to make a cement, et cetera, are really necessary and they require investments and they require ingenuity, they require engineering. Um, and scientists and engineers all around the world are doing absolutely crucial work that has to happen and their work needs to be funded and accelerated for us to deal with the climate crisis. But it's also true that, contra what Gates and Bloomberg and people like that say, just allowing those kind of engineering and investment processes to happen are not going to get us to where we need to go quickly enough. Instead, of course, we know that we need intense forms of activism to really shift what's going on. And especially, we anti-capitalists understand that a huge part of what we need to do to make the transition as quickly as we need to make it. And I should say, by the way, I think um, your listeners probably know this, that we basically, the world needs to stay at a 1.5 degree Celsius level of warming, and we need to cut greenhouse gases in half by 2030 in order to get there, and to be completely uh, out of the greenhouse gas business by 2050. That's an almost impossible goal, but we can get there if we do everything right. And doing everything right requires, again, the work of the scientists and the engineers and the people investing in, in good projects. But it also requires that we stop the motors of capitalism that are pushing us towards disaster. Because we anti-capitalists know how capitalism works, we know that the political system is a site of contest where the forces of money are in a constant war against the forces of democracy. And so we need to take power into account as we address the climate crisis, and we need to fight the forces of destruction that are heading us towards disaster. Having said all that, I want to say also, though, there, there are places where having an anti-capitalist analysis can actually be harmful for the movement to address the climate crisis. Everyone knows that we have until 2030 to cut emissions in half, and we critics of capitalism know very well that capitalism is driving the crisis. But unfortunately, no matter what we do, the revolution against capitalism is not going to happen in the next nine years. And so we can't simply fight for an end to capitalism in order to deal with the climate crisis. Instead, we need to do what almost everyone else is doing who's fighting against the climate crisis. We need to dig in and make the small changes everywhere in our social fabric that need to be made. 
And we need to not feel superior to those who are doing what Marxists sometimes call reformist work. Rather, we need to engage seriously and with all intensity in that reformist work. And one of the things I like to say is that there is reformist work that can be revolutionary reform work. In other words, reformist work that leads to deep social transformation. And that's what we need to be doing right now in the climate crisis. So getting there, getting to the place that we actually cut emissions in the speed that we need to cut them will require people on the left to step out of their comfort zones. Much of the work that has to happen will require advocacy for policy change. It's going to require electoral work. It's going to require work with the Democratic Party and other work that is not specifically anti-capitalist and work that actually is within the systems we live in as they are presently constituted. The moment we're in requires all of us to do as much as we can, as quickly as we can, to get the world to stop emitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and to stop cutting down trees and destroying forests. If your anti-capitalist analysis helps you to understand that that won't be easy, helps you to fight harder in those areas, then your anti-capitalism is a huge help. But if your anti-capitalism keeps you from diving into the fray because the work is too small or because it legitimates the system, then your anti-capitalism needs to be left aside for now. There's a slogan in anarchist organizing that I really like, which says, to change everything, start anywhere. Dealing with the climate crisis requires that we reweave the social fabric in all sorts of ways, at all sorts of locations, in every level of society. Every one of us can find a place in the movement to address the crisis, and it will take creative thinking for many on the left to find their place in doing that significant work. There's a book that I really like by Bill Moyer, who's a social movement theorist, not the media Bill Moyer, called Doing Democracy. And in that book, he argues that social movements require all kinds of different actors and there are different parts for different people at different times. So, for example, there are some times when, you know, something like Occupy, where it's let's put an idea idea on the table that really shocks everybody, that wakes everybody up and gets them thinking is what's needed. Then there are other times where what's needed is really boring and slow kind of uh, policy work and actually dealing with people in the political system. So the point that Moyer makes in his book is that we need to look at social movements as kind of a complex ecosystem of all kinds of different forms of action. And none of us should feel ourselves to be above the kinds of action that are most important at any given moment. So dealing with the climate crisis right now, it requires civil disobedience to shock the system and to, uh, to kind of wake everybody up to the sense of urgency. It requires large scale street protests to show that, uh, that there are a lot of people who feel the way we do. It requires disruptions. Uh, so for example, there's been a form of action called valve turning where people just stop fossil fuel you know, kind of production from happening. But it also requires cultural reframing. It requires us to engage in lifestyle changes like flying less or not at all, or changing our diets to eating less meat and encouraging other people to do those lifestyle changes. And it requires policy and electoral work. That's Cynthia Kaufman talking about her book, The Sea is Rising and So Are We, a climate justice handbook published by PM Press and Between the Lines. I'm C.S., and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Cynthia teaches at De Anza College, where she directs the Vasconcelos Institute for Democracy and Action. We now go back to more of Cynthia's talk. There are advocates all around the country working to get politicians to sign fossil-free pledges, and they're working to elect those people who will not do the bidding of the fossil fuel industry and the agribusiness industry. Activists are also working hard to pass legislation that will protect the climate. In recent years, I've been following the climate bills as they make their way through the legislature in California. And one of the really extraordinary things watching that work is that California's legislature right now is two-thirds Democratic and all of the major uh, you know, statewide offices are all held by Democrats. And surprise, surprise, still, even under those conditions, every year you see a bunch of very significant bills killed in committee by politicians who are doing the bidding of the Western States Petroleum Institute. 
This year in California, there was an incredible bill that was really important in terms of uh, climate justice and equity that would have required setbacks so that you couldn't build new fossil fuel in infrastructure near where people live and near schools. And of course, we all know that in California, most of that drilling happens. Those, those schools and places where drilling happens are mostly in low-income communities of color. And that incredibly important bill was killed in the legislature before it even got out of committee. It was killed by politicians who get funding from the Western States Petroleum Institute. That's an industry organization that unfortunately actually has built uh, support and uses as a front um, some of the building trades unions. So if you want to check out the Common Ground California, you can see the really sickening things that are going on in trying to um, kill climate legislation in California. So it's really important in doing our work that we make sure that there's a strong alliance with labor unions and that we talk about a just transition. So the idea that workers are not going to be left behind as we make the transition and also that we uh, work to unelect the politicians who are taking money from and doing the bidding of those fossil fuel companies. One could say, oh, look how corrupt the Democrats are and, and walk away from the situation. But right now, we actually need to get those bills passed. And we need to do that work by working with the politicians who will carry the, the good bills that actually do keep emerging in California, but also keep getting killed. And we need to do work to expose the politicians who oppose those bills. No matter what you think of the Democratic Party, it's crucial to do that work right now. And I realize that for many on the left, fighting for legislation pushed by the Democratic Party sticks in the craw. It isn't the political aesthetic that we've been trained to embrace. But we don't have time to reject that work is not radical enough for us, and we need to get past our kind of aesthetic interests of the sorts of things that are appealing to us. The work needs to happen, and those of us who understand the nature of power and capitalism and how politicians can be bought need to engage in those fights, and right now our voices are actually especially useful. Climate justice work requires that we take seriously the disparate human impacts of the current situation and that we fight in every way we can to stop the juggernaut of destruction that is driving the climate crisis. So that's kind of like some negative stuff about kind of where anti-capitalism can lead us astray. But I also want to say that I think that there's a significant opportunity presented to us by the climate crisis to actually work for an end to capitalism. I talk about this some in my new book, The Sea is Rising, but in my book, uh, Getting Past Capitalism, I really dig into the idea that we need to think of capitalism as a set of practices that need to be interrupted more than we think of it as a system that needs to be overthrown. If you believe that we can build a post-capitalist world a step at a time, like I do, the climate crisis has opened up incredible opportunities for building the initiatives we need to actually get to a post-capitalist world. We get past capitalism by working for a more democratic political system, and we get past capitalism by stopping the power of multinational corporations and transnational institutions that control our political systems, both local, state, national, and transnational. All of those fights against those things are ongoing, and working to elect politicians who will enact good climate legislation over the objections of the fossil fuel and agribusiness industries helps us move in that direction. So in other words, the work we do to fight the powers that we, the specific narrow set of powers that we're fighting and fighting the climate crisis also fight against the politicians who just generally work in the interest of corporations. So fighting against climate destroying policies actually helps us build toward a post-capitalist world. One of the most important things I learned while working on my book on capitalism was that capitalism creates forms of dependency that we need to break as a way to extricate ourselves from capitalism. So what that means is that capitalism sort of makes us dependent on business doing well, then we all do well, you know, they're making more profits so we get better wages. Uh, there's a way that we're sort of trapped in that and that, that there's a lot of things we can do to what I, what I like to say is decrease the economic dependency trap of capitalism. In other words, to make it so that we 
change the way society is structured in ways that make it such that it's not true that what's good for capitalism is good for our individual survival. We don't need to wait for a revolution to start to get past capitalism. So, for example, one of the mantras of our time is that we need to keep shopping because it keeps people employed. And of course, that logic of consumerism is part of what's driving the climate crisis. One way out of that trap is to fight to strengthen the things that people need to live well that are not part of capitalist wage labor. So, for example, if we have national health care, then we don't need a particular job to access health care. Similarly, if college is free, then we People don't rely on a job to send their children to college. A guaranteed uh, minimum income is another way to break our dependency on the economic dependency trap of capitalism. The $3.5 trillion human infrastructure bill that's being fought over right now in the federal government has a lot of things in it that we need to build a world that works for more people and that actually helps us in that struggle to transform to a world where we're not dependent on capitalist wage labor to survive. One of the things in that bill is actually a significant tax on the wealthy. Taxes on the wealthy are an absolutely crucial part for paying for the human needs that are in that bill, but it's also important for dealing with another crucial aspect of building a world past capitalism, which is actually reducing inequality. So sometimes when we talk about reducing inequality, we talk about the idea that we need the money that comes from taxing the rich to fund social programs. And that's really true. And I think it's crucially important. And it's a crucial, important part of that $3.5 trillion bill that we all need to be advocating for. But there are other things that happen with inequality that are really interesting. There's a book called The Spirit Level, where the authors argue that inequality in itself leads to tremendous social ills. I'm working on a new book right now um, called Enough, which is actually about how to get to a world of enough, meaning three things. Enough for people who are poor right now, enough to leave for nature, but also enough so that people, the sort of middle class people of the world, feel that they have enough. So one of the things that's really driving the climate crisis is people's sense of kind of consumer desire, right? Like. One, of, one interesting little factoid is that uh, in the last 30 years, the size of houses has actually doubled in the United States. And yet we also know that happiness has not gone up in the United States in that period. It's actually gone down. That's another kind of a side conversation is that there's a whole really interesting social scientific literature on the nature of happiness, which just means sort of minimally, like, how you doing? Is your life okay? Do you feel good about your life? And one of the things that you find is that the more inequality there is in a society, the less happy people are. And even wealthy people in unequal societies are less happy than uh, people who don't consume as much in societies with high levels of equality. So one of the things that, um, that I've been looking at a lot lately is the way inequality drives status anxiety, sort of people's sense of like, who am I in life? Am I a good person? Am I a success in life? And that that status anxiety drives tremendous amounts of consumerism. And of course, consumerism makes us unhappy, but it also puts tremendous pressure on the environment. So one of the things that we really need to do to deal with the climate crisis actually is to deal with inequality. So to kind of summarize some of those things, the idea is that we need to strengthen those basics, the, what you know, people call the social democratic state. In other words, the federal and state and local governments that provide people's needs, that provide health care, that provide a security net for when people are old, that provide access to education. All those kinds of things are crucially important for dealing with the climate crisis. And um, the Green New Deal, which people don't really talk about very much anymore, and I think it's because lots of things that were in the original idea of the Green New Deal are being pushed through the infrastructure bills. And if you don't talk about them as the Green New Deal, you're much more likely to get some progress on them. But still, that concept of the Green New Deal, I think, is crucially interesting and really important for the climate crisis. The idea is that to build political support for the transition we need away from fossil fuels, and industrial agriculture, we need to make sure that people's lives are not made worse in the transition. So the idea of the just transition is incredibly powerful. 
Robert Pollan is an economist who just wrote a really interesting and very detailed report for California about how we're going to make the just transition. And this is not kind of abstract general pie in the sky stuff. It's like very specifically, what laws do we need to pass in California? Where do we need to invest our money in order to make a transition completely away from fossil fuels and destructive forms of agri agribusiness in ways that don't leave anybody behind? And that work is important because it's really crucial that we keep the unions on board in the transition and that we keep sort of um, general population on board. That this is that as we make the transition, to a sustainable world, everybody's lives are going to be better. That's the voice of Cynthia Kaufman, director of the Vasconcelos Institute for Democracy and Action at De Anza College in Cupertino, California. We've put a link to Cynthia's book, The Sea is Rising and So Are We, on our website, againstthegrain.org. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. We now continue with more of Cynthia's talk. So much of what's been on the agenda for progressives for the past decade is really urgent now and needs to be advocated for as part of a transition to a healthy climate. And much of that work also helps us on a path away from capitalism. One little thing I just wanted to mention that I think is pretty great is that uh, Congresswoman Elon Omar has in introduced legislation to begin to use the Genuine Progress Indicator, GPI, to measure the health of the U.S. economy. One of the great things about the GPI is it measures social goods like do people have more leisure? Is there less crime? Are people happy? Uh, it, so it measures those things as positives. And then it measures things like air pollution and crime as negatives. So the idea of the genuine progress indicator is you're measuring the economy based on how well our people are doing. And that's uh, to eventually, hopefully, uh, replace GDP which has been a horrible way to measure the economy. And actually, the inventors of GDP never intended it to be that. They intended it to just measure boom and bust cycles within an economy as part of kind of a Keynesian uh, process of stabilization. But increasingly over time, GDP came to be used as a measure of a health of an economy. And what's problematic about that is GDP simply measure, measures capitalist throughput. So if everybody is working 80 hours a week and uh, paying for childcare, buying meals, paying for quick vacations because they work too much, uh, we have more GDP, but we have a much less happy population. So if we want to get to a less capitalist intensive economy, we have to stop thinking of capitalist throughput as an unmitigated good for our economy and start measuring the economy based on what's actually serving human and ecological needs. So for people on the left, I want to say that we're in, a, of course, a really terrifying time. Just think about the fires that we're all experiencing here in California right now. And Frightening because we may not make the transition to a sustainable climate. Getting there is just about impossible. But I also think that we may be in a slow motion revolutionary moment right now where all kinds of things are not only possible that we didn't think were possible a short time ago, but actually which are necessary for the survival of the human species. We all have roles to play in making change in these very unstable times. There's work to be done in the electoral arena. There's work to be done in fighting for legislation. There's work to be done in the areas that are traditionally more comfortable for, for those of us on the left, protesting civil disobedience, sh shutting down the fossil fuel industry, exposing the lies and the subsidies and, and hidden means of supporting business as usual that are all baked into the system we're working on right, right now. The main goal of my book, The Sea is Rising, is to provide a ramp to involvement in that movement. If you think about getting involved in the climate movement, I think a lot of people are afraid because you start talking about all kinds of things that seem really technical and wonky and engineering oriented. And so I wrote the book to make it so that uh, everything you need is in a simple and easy to read book. And now I want you just to pick up the gauntlet and get to work. As we fight to address the climate crisis, we can simultaneously build the post-capitalist world that so many of us have been working for for so many years. 
But to do that, we need to be part of the mechanics of the transition and not have a fantasy of an anti-capitalist revolution that might turn us away from the actual work that needs to be done really urgently right now. So I really want to just invite your listeners to figure out where's the best place for them in the movement and to dig in because really the next 10 years are the most crucial years for the future of the human species. Cynthia Kaufman is her name. She was speaking about her book, The Sea is Rising and So Are We, A Climate Justice Handbook. You are listening to Against the Grain, and we now go to an interview I conducted with Cynthia about some of the other ideas and issues raised in her book. The French philosopher Bruno Latour, he wrote a book called Down to Earth, Politics in the New Climatic Regime. I think it came out in 2018. You believe that that book helps us understand the political moment we're in, and it also offers a map toward a political realignment that will make it possible to achieve a sustainable world. What insights do you draw from Latour's book? I love that book. I found it really helpful. So one of the things he talks about is that uh, he has a, a really deep critique of neoliberalism and what I would think of as sort of corporate Democrats and all of that, which is to say that, you know, there's there's a, an ideology that's been really dominant in the world for the last, let's say, 30 years, which basically argues that, that the sort of rational, scientific, progress-oriented, uh, humanistic people in the world uh, believe in as much freedom for capitalism as possible. So you think, you know, so, you know, on the one side, then Latour talks about those kind of... Um, those uh, sort of rationalist pro-corporate Democrats. And he says it's not surprising that that's created a backlash of kind of nationalism as people feel like the world's not livable. Those supposedly rational expert people are creating a world that's unlivable where there's tremendous rural poverty all over this country, but also in a lot of other places in the world. One of the things that Latour is arguing is is that those pro-corporate folks have really dug their own grave and we can understand uh, sort of corporate Democrats and the neoliberal transnational regime as being partly responsible for Trump, for Brexit, for the kinds of reactionary nationalism that we're seeing all over the world. And so what Latour then argues is that we need to move away from the polarization of kind of uh, left and right Democrat Republican that we have and toward an orientation toward the terrestrial. In other words, what's good for our home, the earth. And then he argues that basically we need to think about what are the things that make it so that people aren't forced to migrate, that people's homes aren't made unlivable and all those things. And so to re kind of re reorient our politics toward what's going to make it so that people feel good about their governments, feel good about the economic systems that they're in, and that those things are sustainable both for the environment but also for their own survival. I gather he's encouraging us to think about uh, these crises and these issues as interconnected, right? That a lot of us may think, well, climate and climate justice activism is really devoted to only a particular set of uh, actions and processes. He's he's thinking us to think in a broader, more holistic way. Yeah, exactly. And so one of the things I really like about that book, and I have a quote from uh, from the book about this in my book, is that um, is that if you think about the global refugee crisis, you think about the crisis in right wing nationalism, and you think about the climate crisis they're all deeply related to one another. And that as we solve the one, we solve the other. And so the things that we need to do, and this goes back to some of what I was saying earlier, the things that we need to do to deal with the climate crisis also help us deal with some of the roots of the, the kind of problems of poverty and, and, and the other crises created by capitalism. Another thinker you cite in your book, This Sea is Rising and So Are We, a climate justice handbook by my guest Cynthia Kaufman, is the Norwegian psychologist and economist Per Espen Stoknes. Hope I'm not butchering his name. He wrote a book called What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming. 
What did he say in that book that you find interesting? What I loved about that book is that he really brought the information from cognitive, behavioral, social psychology to the question of the climate crisis. One and and really focuses on messaging. So it's a wonderful book. And just by the way, he then has another book that follows it that's an argument for green growth, which I think is terrible. And I wrote a review taking down. But this book is really, really useful. I think as a thinker, he's much more pro-capitalist than I am. But he has some really important points. So as you get involved in working on the climate crisis, you find an awful lot of people who think that what we need to do is basically to say the sky is falling, right? Oh my God, oh my God, it's urgent, you know, and to kind of up that sense of urgency. And what he's found is that the more you push that, the more people resist because they don't want to freak out. And I don't want to freak out either. So that one of the things, one of the insights from his book is that it's crucial for those of us working on the climate crisis to always talk about the positive alternatives. What are the things we can be doing to build a better world? And I feel really strongly about that. I, I actually believe that it's deeply true that as we get past the climate crisis, we build a world which is a much more humane world for all of us. That's one of his points. The other point is this idea of cognitive dissonance. He has one of my favorite little factoids from his book is uh, the claim that people who are climate deniers are not people who are ignorant. They're people who have defenses against hearing our, our message so that the most well-informed right-wingers are often the ones who actually believe in climate denialism because to think otherwise would require them to sort of shift who they are and how they are and how they are with their communities. And so they're just not going to take that fact in. People don't take in facts that don't accord with the needs of their social world. What you were saying kind of relates to your assertion in the book that as we speak with others about the climate crisis, we need to be strategic in our messaging. Um, in addition to what you've already said, how can we be strategic? What approach do we take as we try and, you know, hopefully some of us are trying to interact with people who don't agree with our opinions on what's happening to the climate and what needs to be done? I think a really important part of climate messaging, again, the, the most important part is, is the idea that in dealing with the climate crisis, we build a better world. I think another part of the message that's really crucial is that um, is this idea that we actually need to fight against the powers that be. And that the fight is a fight to shift the power structure in society and specifically to take the power away from the fossil fuel and agribusiness industries. And that it's not a fight that's just about us changing how we live our own personal lives. You know, there's a there's a kind of another tangent on this that I want to take, which is that um, the the idea of everybody has to watch out for their carbon footprint was first really promoted by British Petroleum. They promoted it because they'd like us to not think about them and their actions. British Petroleum would rather we each think about our own lifestyles. And there's something really problematic kind of historically in the US environmental movement. Um, and it's there's a tremendous focus on individual lifestyle action. And it's really toxic and it actually undermines climate action because what it does is it says, I should be buying better products. Uh, I should be, you know, going on ecological vacations. There's a kind of a culture of ecological, like who, who is an environmentalist that's really problematic. It's problematic because it puts the focus on individual purchases as opposed to where it needs to be, which is on systems of power that need to be transformed urgently and immediately. And it also kind of frames like who is an environmentalist. So, you know, if you think about your image of environmentalist, it's probably a rather wealthy white person who maybe lives in the country, maybe has two homes, maybe flies a lot, but buys environmental products or, you know, has an electric car or something like that. The people with the low, lowest carbon footprint on this planet are actually the poorest people. And the place where you can have the least carbon impact in the United States is New York City because people there 
use public transportation and live in small homes. So the messaging has to move away from consumerism and individual lifestyle and to focus on the systems of power that need to be changed immediately. Yeah, and in fact, you write that in the old mantra, reduce, reuse, recycle, we hear that a lot. The most important and most neglected part is reducing. Yeah, that's right. And so what gets us to reduce? What gets us to reduce is when we have economic systems that don't require us to keep buying more and more stuff to survive and social systems that make it such that we don't feel like social outcasts when we wear old clothes, drive old cars, have houses that are a little run down looking, you know, maybe small or we live in small apartments. So that reducing is really crucial. And the way we get there actually has to do with, again, kind of some policy things, but also some kind of social and cultural things. You mentioned in your talk uh, this issue, this reality of status anxiety. Can you elaborate on it a, a little more, like what causes it and what then it does in relation to consumption? Yeah, so I just did a deep dive into this and work for my, my next book. And it was really interesting to me because I, I live in a suburban neighborhood where there's a lot of small homes that are really beautiful little homes that are about a thousand square feet. And in the last 10 years, people keep buying them, flattening them and putting in 3,000 or 4,000 square foot homes. And I keep asking myself and wondering, why do I, my neighbors who don't have very many people in a household feel like they need a house that big? I actually find a big house harder to clean than a small house. And so I started reading about it. And one of the things that I really found in, in the reading that I did is that in contemporary capitalist societies where we don't have a strong sense of community and belonging, people start to get their sense of meaning uh, from their social status, from their kind of position in the, in the social pecking order. And one of the things you find in a very stratified society like we have in the United States is that people on the top are happier than people on the bottom. But if you have a society that doesn't have that level of stratification, in other words, where there are high levels of equality, most people, including the wealthier people, are actually happier. And people have done been doing research on this and actually show cortisol levels, right? Like actual levels of stress hormones in people's bodies are higher in more unequal societies. And they're even higher for the people who are higher up. So I feel like having done that reading, I feel like it's, um, I feel like I have an answer to my question, right? That, that what makes my neighbors feel like they need giant houses is that they feel insecure pure and simple. It's really that simple. This 1.5 degree Celsius, right, the warming of the temperature as kind of a threshold. Um, every time I hear that, I wonder, haven't we gone beyond that threshold already? I mean, wh where do we stand in terms of temperature rise over, over the last decade or two? So far as I know, I believe we're at 1.1 right now, degree warming over pre-industrial levels. So we haven't actually hit 1.5 yet. Uh, what you might be referring to is, you know, the organization 350.org uh, came into existence, gosh, I don't know, about 10 years ago, saying that the parts per million of greenhouse of carbon dioxide that we need in the atmosphere, you know, was a maximum of 350. Uh, that we've gone way beyond. I don't know the exact number, but we're up in the 400s at this point. So that's the that's the benchmark that we've already exceeded, but we have not yet exceeded, gone past the 1.5 degree Celsius goal. So there is there is still time to solve this problem. There really is. So let's say someone wants to launch him or herself or themselves into this fight, the climate fight. What's the most important piece of advice you could give on the issue of where that person could turn to find specific information about what organizations are out there and to come up with a concrete plan for how to move forward and who to contact and what to join? So thank you for that question. Um, 
when I when I think about somebody picking up my book, reading it and saying, okay, I'm ready, I want to get involved in the climate mu movement, um, I do actually have quite a bit in the book about that. And what I would say is that it's really different for all of us. People have different kinds of things that they enjoy doing. People have uh, different capacities in terms of time and energy. But what I would say is the most important thing is to know that the world was not created to make your climate activism easy. In other words, it might take you a while to find the right place. It may be that you're not going to feel necessarily that the work is significant, but you've just got to get at it, work hard at it, find a pace that works for you in your life, and don't give up. That's what I want to say. Now, I actually, um, I have a web page that's uh, at WordPress. So it's uh, Cynthia Kaufman at WordPress.org. And on the site that I have for this book, I actually have a little handout that's, a, that's a advice for action that talks about some of the organizations to get involved with. Um, and what I would say is no matter where somebody lives, there's going to be either legislation to fight for or legislation to fight against. There's going to be institutions like schools that are uh, working on sustainability, but that need to be pushed to move faster. There's going to be protest action to do. There's going to be banks to protest, to shut down. There's going to be fossil fuel infrastructure to shut down. So people can just get involved in this on their own, or they can find an organization that kind of accords with their worldview and their kind of cultural needs. And I think you were trying to give a URL, but it came out as Cynthia at WordPress.org. What is the, uh, what's the site people should go to? If you just go to CynthiaKaufman.net, you will find me. It's a WordPress site. Her name is Cynthia Kaufman, director of the Vasconcelos Institute for Democracy in Action at De Anza College, where she runs and teaches in a community organizer training program. Her books include Getting Past Capitalism, History, Vision, Hope, Challenging Power, Democracy and Accountability in a Fractured World, and Ideas for Action, Relevant Theory for Radical Change. We've been talking about her new book, The Sea is Rising and So Are We, a Climate Justice Handbook. Thank you, Cynthia, for your work and for joining us today. Thank you, C.S. This was really fun. A few months ago, I spoke with Michael Staudenmeyer about how ideas of fascism and state repression were deployed by the U.S. Latinx left in the 1970s and 80s. I want to share some interesting, previously unaired remarks about the use of grand juries as a tool of state repression. You'll hear Mike refer to the MLN, that's a group active in the U.S. in the late 1970s and early 80s, that brought together Puerto Rican nationalists and Chicano and Mexicano militants. Here's Michael Staudenmeyer. The role of grand juries, it's a legal process. The creation of a grand jury is part of the legal process to determine whether or not to charge someone with a crime. Uh, this is the opportunity for, um, in this case, the, the U.S. attorney to kind of uh, do some digging and try and find out what happened if they believe that a crime had been committed and, and who might be responsible. Um, and one of the things that can happen at a grand jury is that you can call witnesses. Uh, now, often in the case of these sorts of criminal investigations, the witnesses are people who m might be worried that they would themselves be suspects, um, and therefore they're not necessarily friendly. They're not necessarily interested in testifying. And as a result, this goes back, I believe, to English common law. Grand juries have the power to issue subpoenas in exchange for a form of immunity so that the people who are called to testify at the grand jury are told, you will not be charged with a crime based on whatever your testimony is. And in exchange, we can force you to testify uh, and a judge can enforce those subpoenas if people refuse to testify in spite of that form of immunity that they receive, the judge can put people in, in jail. Now, this is not a, a criminal conviction. That is a possibility, and it actually happens in the early 80s to a handful of members of the MLN. They serve several months of a prison sentence having been convicted of what's called criminal contempt of court. But usually, and what happens in 1977 after the founding of the MLN, um, is something called civil contempt. It's simply a determination by the judge uh, that 
people who had been, you know, lawfully called to testify in front of a grand jury and had been given immunity had refused to testify. And so we put them in prison to get them to change their minds. Um, that can last several months. Usually grand juries have a specific time limit. They have to come to an end. And when the grand jury expires, then those people have to be let out of jail. And that's what happens to, again, several of the founding members of the MLN. Uh, and that leads to a whole analysis that's promoted by the MLN and a number of other factions of the US left that says the grand jury is itself a weapon of state repression, because what you're doing, if you're thinking about it from the perspective of uh, the federal prosecutors, is you're taking these activists off the street for a period of time. You know that they are committed not to testifying, um, in part because they're worried that it will you know, negatively impact some of their comrades, maybe people in the organization who weren't called to testify, who might actually be the target of these investigations, or people who aren't in the MLN but are Puerto Rican independence activists. Again, there's an active armed struggle going on at this time with a number of people who are effectively living underground. They are the likeliest targets of these investigations. They're not being given immunity. And so if you do testify, then you could put some of your close comrades at risk. So the prosecutor understands that in advance, realizes these people aren't going to testify. Well, then it's win-win. If they do testify, then you can get good information out of them that can help you put uh, these other people behind bars. And if they don't testify, then you get to put them behind bars, the, the would-be witnesses, and they can't be out in the streets organizing protests and rallies and demonstrations. So that's the power of the grand jury as a, uh, as a tool of state repression. And it's one of the things that the MLN really is kind of forged in the fire of this movement of grand jury resistance. Uh, and you know, it, it becomes a central piece of their analysis of the state. Uh, and some of their ideas of fascism are really, you know, based on this direct personal experience of being put into prison, you know, without ever having been convicted of a crime, which seems in the United States like something that's not supposed to happen. And yet, through the format of the grand jury and the concept of civil contempt, it, it happens uh, fairly routinely in the 1970s, targeting especially Puerto Rican and, and Mexicano radicals. Michael Staudenmeyer, Assistant Professor of History at Manchester University in Indiana. His article, America's Scapegoats, Ideas of Fascism in the Construction of the U.S. Latina, Latino, Latinx Left, 1973-83, appeared in Radical History Review. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>